This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 167, Spies. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a Citizen of Heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. Thanks for checking in. Spy stories have always fascinated me. The subterfuge, the twists and turns, the idea of being involved in something bigger than yourself. I'm largely over that, though, and this week I'll tell you why. We will cover the challenges of getting too much information, the sacrifices that must be made for the cause, the moral dilemma of banana pudding, and the options available to us when we're in over our heads. We'll start with what I've been preaching. The spy story that I've heard the most, certainly the one that I've heard the most in church settings, Bible class settings, is the story of Kadesh Barnea, as recorded in Numbers chapter 13 and 14. Moses has led the people through the wilderness. It's taken considerably longer than it should have. Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 2 tells us that it's an 11 days journey. It's taken about two years, but they've made it. And here they are on the brink of receiving all the blessings that God has promised to his people for hundreds of years. And they send spies into the land, 12 spies, one from each tribe, to find out what they're facing. The spies come back with glowing reports of the land. It is truly everything that God and Moses had promised. But 10 of them choose to harp on the negatives. The great walled cities that they had not faced before, the children of Anak are described here, giants in the land. They saw themselves as grasshoppers in the eyes of the enemy. Joshua and Caleb, two of the other spies, insist that no, they need to trust in God, that God will give them the victory. But the people choose to believe the 10 spies to the point where they're willing to reject Moses, find another leader who will take them back to Egypt so they can re-enter bondage. There's an interesting twist to the story given to us in Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 22. Moses retelling the story here as he is about to die, as the people are about to enter the land finally, after 40 years, not two years, and entering at the Jordan River and not Kadesh Barnea. Moses says in verse 22, Then all of you approached me and said, Let us send men before us that they may search out the land for us and bring back to us word of the way by which we should go up and the cities which we shall enter. And he says, The thing pleased me in verse 23. That sounded like a good idea. But the implication is pretty obvious. This is your fault, he's saying. Probably wouldn't be unfair to say Moses is feeling a little bitter here at the end. He knows that he could have entered the land of Canaan if he just stuck to his guns and not listened to the people. And because they did wait, Moses fell victim to temptation himself. He winds up falling short of God's expectations. Now he's not entering the land at all. He's saying, I could have entered the land 38 years ago, except for you people except for this spy report that you insisted on listening to. The idea of spies, of course, is to get information. And generally speaking, I think it's fair to say that more information is better than less information, all things being equal. But all things aren't always equal. Sometimes too much information can be a problem rather than a blessing. Having knowledge of how the world works is not always a good thing. It can be a terrifying thing. And Jesus is quick to point out the difficulties, the hardships. He doesn't want us buying a pig in a poke. He wants us to understand the commitment that we're making. Sometimes, though, listening to the level of that commitment is a little bit disturbing. In this conversation by the lake that is recorded for us in John chapter 21, 
verses 18 and 19, Jesus tells Peter there of his fate, telling of how he is going to be bound up by others and taken where he does not want to go. And after having said that, then he turns to Peter and says, follow me. Are we willing to follow when we know how bad it is going to be? Knowledge of the world can very easily change into a challenge to our faith. Peter, again, at the center of the story, as always seems to be the case. In Matthew chapter 14, he is calling out to Jesus, asking him to be allowed to walk out to him on the water. In the middle of the stormy sea, the sea that he thought was going to kill him just a few moments ago, he begins to walk. But then he takes his eyes off of Jesus. He starts looking at the world. He starts looking at the wind and the waves, and he falters. That's how knowledge of the world oftentimes will work. We need to keep our eyes on Jesus, no matter how much information we have or do not have about what's facing us, trusting that Jesus is going to get us through. Knowledge of God works the same way. Clearly a good thing. Surely more knowledge of God is better than less. Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 9 and following, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and ask that you be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Clearly here, knowledge of God, knowledge of the things of God. This empowers us to please him in all respects, the text says here. We are strengthened with all power. These are good things. At least in theory they are. But the stronger our faith gets, the stronger the pull of pride is. First Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1 reminds us that knowledge has a tendency to puff us up. Love is what edifies. There's always a way to turn this knowledge into a negative thing if we're willing to do it. If we lose focus on what's truly important, by looking to Jesus always, by remembering what we owe to him, remembering his example, and our weak attempts to follow that example, we can remain on an even keel. We can remain focused on spiritual things. Whatever your situation happens to be, however much knowledge you have or do not have, don't let that knowledge take you away from what you are truly trying to accomplish in this life. Receive the report from the spies. Take in all this information and then use that information to further and strengthen your efforts to glorify God. This is what I've been reading. Confession time. I just cannot get into John le Carré. I've tried. This is the second time I've tried. He's supposed to be the master of suspense, the master of the spy novel. And I love the idea of having an episode on spies. This is the reason that the idea came to my mind in the first place. I ran across a discounted copy of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy by John Le Carre. Well, I read the spy that came in from the cold years ago or tried to, hated it, could not get through it, wound up putting it down. And that's saying something. I don't usually quit on books. Years later, I find this copy of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. Well, I'll give it another try. It's the same thing. So two times is probably the charm. I think I'll probably quit for good on Mr. Lacare. Sorry, sir. But it did at least put in my mind the level of commitment that is necessary. And this is one of the things about spy novels and spyware in general that has always intrigued me. The willingness to dive deep and completely immerse yourself 
in this fake world, in the lies, in the deception. And I'm not trying to get into an argument here about whether it's okay in certain situations to tell lies. That's not my story here at all. But there's a sense in which I do appreciate the willingness to so completely give up every other aspect of your life in pursuit of the one thing that is absolutely paramount. What would you say your mission is in this life? Fill in the blank here. I'm just trying to blank. Where is your head these days? Where's your heart? I'm just trying to graduate college. I'm just trying to get my kid out of diapers. I'm just trying to pay off this house. I'm just trying to get the big promotion. Whatever it happens to be. Things that are not necessarily bad things. How committed are you to this task? How much are you willing to invest of yourself? In the spy world, if you're not willing to do absolutely anything slash everything, you're going to be a rotten spy. Are you willing to give that kind of commitment, including and particularly in matters where you're going to be asked to whittle away at the values that Jesus is trying to instill in you? You've read about the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit any number of times, I'm sure. Go through it with me one more time. Galatians 5, verse 19 and following. Now, the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Well, you might argue that half or more of those things are not really relevant to your day-to-day life, and maybe they're not, and good for you if they're not. But what if you're asked to, for instance, involve yourself in strife, if jealousy is really the way to climb the corporate ladder, if outbursts of anger show your commitment to the cause, if you're being asked to use disputes and dissensions and such to make your case, if that shows you to be strong, if that shows you to be effective in your dealings in business or school or what have you, is there a way in which becoming a worse Christian might make you a better whatever it is? If we find ourselves going down that road, we need to take stock. We need to back up. The same thing works with the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things there is no law. These are always good things in the cause of Christ. They're not always good things in other causes. Sometimes they are hindrances in other causes. How important is it that you accomplish these carnal goals that you have set out in front of you. Committing your money, committing your time, committing your affections, those very well may be appropriate and perhaps even good things to do. But know when to draw the line. No matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, no matter what your priorities are in the moment, first and foremost, you are a citizen of heaven. First and foremost, you are a Christian. And nothing we are doing in the short term however rationalized we may be able to make it in our minds, should be important enough for us to compromise who we truly are at our core. You are a Christian, first, last, and always. Don't ever let that be in dispute. This is what I've been hearing. 
You may be out there asking yourself today, how, what could an early 20th century American author and dessert trends in the American South possibly have to do with South American politics? If that is what you're asking, I'm glad to have an answer for you. The author in question is O. Henry, who Austin, Texas likes to claim as its own. O. Henry didn't do much of his writing in Austin, as it turns out. He did do some embezzling in Austin while he was working for a bank. And while he was on the run from that embezzlement charge, he found himself in Honduras. And he did some writing in Honduras. The book that he wrote there coined the phrase Banana Republic. A banana republic, according to O. Henry, is a government that is actually being run by corporate interests. Fruit interests, as it turns out, the United Fruit Company more or less ran Honduras and most other Central and South American nations. They would arrange for a favorable government to be in place. They would get all kinds of tax breaks, cheap labor, etc. And then they would take the fruit, especially bananas, and ship it to America for American consumers most of which would dock at the port of New Orleans. Now, the American South, of course, doesn't grow bananas, really. But once we found bananas, we went to town on it. And that's why we have banana pudding at virtually every church social you're ever going to go to. I don't know what your position is on colonialism, either current or past, what your position is on business interests and lobbying and all that kind of thing. That's really beyond the purview of this podcast. But it's worth noting, at least in passing, that nations in general, America in particular, are well known for having been involved in the support, overthrow, etc. of various foreign powers so as to accomplish the interests of American corporations, who of course would support various politicians for their vote on this or that or the other, and it's all a one hand feeding the other kind of thing. So because of the alliance between American business and Central and South American governments, the nations did not develop very quickly. Labor was exploited, at least arguably so. People with, let's be kind and say questionable morals and ethics were kept in power, not because of what they could do for Honduras or Bolivia or any other nation, but because of what they could do for America. In the age of the internet, of course, this sort of behavior tends to be found out. I don't doubt that it's a lot tougher to run a sweatshop, for instance, in Singapore today than it would have been 50 years ago. But at the same time, it's fair to say that it's quite likely the case that there are people out there who are working behind the scenes doing things of questionable ethical nature, maybe even criminal behavior, so that we can have the lifestyle that we would like to become accustomed to whether it's bananas or iPhones or anything in between. What's our role as Christians with regard to that? There are a lot of people who will try to take an absolute no-go position on anything that is manufactured or produced or whatever under circumstances that would seem to be less than ideal, less than fair to everyone involved, including and particularly the workers. And I don't want to sound like I don't care anything about a dollar a day labor in Nicaragua or the Philippines or Malaysia or any other place. But is it necessary for a Christian to completely absent himself or herself 
from any behavior whatsoever that might be tinged with unfairness or bigotry or communism or whatever boogeyman you want to talk about. The Bible actually kind of weighs in on that. And it may not say what you expected to say. The traditional approach that I have taken, that most Christians I know have taken to such things is a don't ask, don't tell policy, essentially. Is it better for me to investigate and stay above board completely? Or is it better for me to just kind of mind my own business and involve myself where I have direct knowledge? It's kind of parallel to the food sacrifice to idols issue that Paul wrestles with in some of his epistles, especially 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, starting verse 25, we read, Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone asks you this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of one who informed you and for conscience sake. He's saying there that in your dealings with people, especially people who don't have a whole lot of regard or experience with Jesus, you're going to be exposed to things of the world. In fact, how could you possibly not be exposed to such things? And it may be that the meat that you are eating at a dinner party somewhere was part of an idolatrous ceremony. That's how things tended to work in Corinth. They didn't always work that way, but many times they did. An animal was butchered in some idolatrous ceremony and then taken next door to the butcher shop and sold in the meat markets. Paul says, go ahead and eat the meat. Don't ask questions. If you're put in a position where you know you are compromising your values, you know that you are taking a stand against Jesus and in favor of idols, don't do that. By no means should you do that. But as long as it's just meat, realize that everything came from God, whether it was offered to an idol or not, there is no real God behind the idol anyway. Be grateful for what God has supplied to you. I think there's a reasonable connection between that and the issues that we're talking about here. Nobody is in favor of exploiting people. Nobody's in favor of slavery or horrific conditions or abuse of other human beings. But the bottom line is that kind of behavior takes place a lot. And God has blessed me in many ways, in many circumstances, whether we're talking about food or shelter or possessions or entertainment, whatever it happens to be. My role is not to make sure that it's all pure in the fullest sense of the word. My job is to glorify God in whatever he chooses to give to me. I don't want to participate in anything that's evil, but I also don't want to be ungrateful for what God has provided for me. You're never going to be able to fix the world. If you manage to close one sweatshop, another one's going to open up. All you can do is live in good conscience as best you can. So do that. And no matter what you do, no matter where you go, no matter what you eat or don't eat, make sure it glorifies God. This is what I've been playing. I've played a variety of spy-themed games in my time. Covert certainly is the one that is the most immersive. I'm not trying to suggest that it's like being a spy. That's silly. But it does give you the feeling, to a certain degree, of being involved in spycraft. You have this big map of Europe laid out in front of you, and you have codes to break, and you have missions to accomplish, and you have gadgets to collect, and you have to put them all together so as to accomplish one mission and then another mission and maybe some more missions. The more effectively you deal with these issues that come up, the better spy you are. 
And I have the same problem with Covert as I have with a lot of other games at this kind of difficulty level. I get so caught up in accomplishing one particular task that I let the game slide by. I see that to complete this particular mission, I have to find a shoe phone. And to find a shoe phone, I have to go to Warsaw. And to go to Warsaw, I have to roll a four or something along those lines. That's not the way the game works exactly, but you get the idea. And so I work really hard trying to roll a four. And then after having that, then I find myself, hopefully at least, to go to Warsaw. And then I pick up the shoe phone. If it's still there, if somebody didn't do it, then I have to regroup, et cetera. And bottom line, by the time I get around to accomplishing this one thing that I was really trying to accomplish, three turns have slid by, and my opponents have all done two or three things themselves. And I just get further and further behind. It's frustrating. It's entertaining, but it's frustrating. And as is generally the case with these mid to heavy games, I'm left with a question. Do I want to play this game well? Do I want to play this game poorly or do I want to not play this game? It's a relatively straightforward decision. My daughter Kylie has decided to not play the game. She doesn't like covert at all. My daughter Taylor loves the game and she would love to play it better and better and better. Either one of these options is perfectly fine. Nobody's going to go to heaven or hell because they did or did not play a particular game or because they won a whole lot or lost a whole lot. What I kind of struggle with is the idea of mediocrity. The idea of every once in a while picking the game up, never getting any better, never learning anything, just getting beaten all the time. It reminds me a little bit of the Laodiceans in Revelation chapter 3. Neither hot nor cold. There's a use for hot water. There's a use for cold water. Be in the middle, it's kind of nauseating actually. I don't want to spend my life in the middle. I don't want to spend my life committed sort of to a particular task, but never really getting good at that task. If I want to be a spy, I want to be the best spy. If I want to be a baker, I want to be the best baker. If I want to be a plumber, I want to be the best plumber. And certainly if I want to be a Christian, I want to be the best Christian. Jesus says in Luke chapter 14 that you need to count the cost before you start to build the tower or go to war. He's speaking to us. He's not trying to discourage us from committing to him, but to help us realize that this is a task that is not for everybody. In the context of marriage in Matthew chapter 19, he says some people are not up for this. And we see the evidence for that all around us in the modern day. Plenty of people are simply not prepared to accept what Jesus has to say about marriage or about anything else as far as that goes. And I'm certainly not encouraging someone to quit. And if you're on the verge of quitting in your service to Jesus Christ, please don't allow me to push you over the edge. That's not the point here at all. The point is this. If you want to serve Jesus and you find that you're just kind of piddling, you're not doing all that well, find a way to dig deeper. Find a way to give yourself to this task. Remember what Peter says in the last verse that he wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. We're supposed to be growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We develop. We progress. We're better Christians today than we were yesterday or the day before. That's the way it should work. And that's the way that we ought to want it to work. What do you want? Do you want to be middling? Do you want to be average? I encourage you to not settle for that. 
get the absolute most out of your relationship with Jesus. The one who sows bountifully is going to reap bountifully, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And the one who sows sparingly is going to reap sparingly. Invest yourself fully in Jesus. Yes, it's going to be expensive. Yes, it is going to have a negative effect on various other aspects of your life. You may not get to be the world's best plumber or the world's best baker. But if you do wind up being an excellent Christian, if you do wind up growing in your faith and becoming more and more pleasing to the Lord, all the sacrifice is going to be worth it. You've been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.halhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.